This is Unfilter, episode 280, for May 16th, 2018. We're back, and as we said, the president fulfilled a major campaign promise today with the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. But as the elaborate dedication ceremony took place with high-profile guests like Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner on hand, less than 60 miles away at the Gaza border, huge protests turned decidedly and suddenly deadly. 56 Palestinians were killed. Coming to you right now from the Pacific Northwest, it's time again for Unfiltered Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show about the news you really shouldn't be watching. My name is Jace. On the board is Mr. Chris. Mr. Chairman, it's good to be with you again. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Uh, This show has now come to order. And uh, on today's docket, we're going to talk cyber. How'd you know? We're also going to talk probably about our president. Uh, It could happen. And maybe a little Russia. Maybe a little Jerusalem in there. Yeah, it could be a little Hamas, some maybe, rockets. Maybe a little net neutrality. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. And perhaps maybe a few other surprises in there as well as a high note and yeah. a super dense overtime. And, of course, we're going to check out my sack. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. I saw I saw you were up early this morning on the old Patreon, uh, letting the uh, Club I, I, 33 get in on that. I, you were on top of that, my, dude. My goal every week, because, you know, to me, you know, not only... Our Patreon family is very important to us over at patreon.com slash unfilter, a shameless plug. Yo. But also Club 33, because you guys, man, you know, you bring in every week. Uh, Veritunda, by the way, special shout out to him. He is he's probably a, he's by far, he's on top of every it. single week, he's yeah. given his, uh, basically, the news coming from the UK. Yeah. And so big, big props to Veritunda and everybody you know, who supports us. Thank you know, you. at Linux Fest, I had a chance to meet two of our Club 33 members, and just a couple of really cool guys. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. All right, yeah, so we are going to talk about all those things that you uh, you just mentioned. Um, this is going to be our last normal episode for a little while, too. What? We're not normal? Yeah. Well, we're going to be Abby Normal for a bit. Um, so we're going to, maybe, if all things go as planned, this yes. is all tentative at this moment, but yes. we're going to try a remote broadcast setup for next week's episode of The Unfilter, where Chase will be running the board, which yes. is something I've... I've done for 278 episodes. So I've ran the board from JB1 one time uh, during the show. Chris was uh, was actually not even here. I think it was myself and I was just by myself. I was solo. Right. Uh, and then I did do a show with Noah once. And then, okay, so it's three times because then there was one time I was in Arizona and we did a show. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so this time around, we're doing it differently. I'll, yeah. be, I'll be broadcast uh, Remote Central. And I'll be bringing Chris in remotely. Yeah, and now the even though you'll be, studio. yeah, even though you'll be here, we want to try it. Yeah, I may actually, if if it goes really really smooth, I may actually go to the RV and yeah, awesome. do a full test because yeah. the, the thing is, I'm going down to Texas. Yeah, uh, and I'm leaving like May 27th. Right. Damn. So we've got to figure this out soon. Damn. Yeah, and then I'll be down there at Texas Linux Fest in Austin, Texas. So that's I'm glad we do the show on Wednesdays because I, I my weekends are are filling up. Oh man. Oh, man, Chase. Yeah. All right. Well, there was a big kind of cyber story this what? week. What? Yeah. I, I, really? I'm surprised. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's not a lot of direct coverage about it, so we're going to do a little original reporting here in the Unfilter show. Did you hear about the elimination of the cyber coordinator position today? I did. I, I heard that John Bolton, uh, you know, really yep. wants to cut the fat. Yep. And, and he... uh, streamline things yeah. is the word they're using. Uh-huh. Yeah, here it is. This is a uh, national security advisor, John Bolton. 
This is uh, the rep- this is the Democrat from Rhode Island, uh, Representative James Levine. I think that's how you say his name. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And uh, he is basically all upset that this position has been eliminated. Now, in, in full disclosure, I did a little, le- little research on him. That's because he's involved in like one of the committees that gets money for cyber defense and stuff. So, like, oh, so he's like feeling a budget pinch right yeah, now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I'm not I'm not saying one way or the other. But right. That might be what his interest is here in this particular situation. Today, National Security Advisor John Bolton eliminated the position of Special Assistant to the President and Cybersecurity Advisor. I could not more strongly disagree with that decision. As co-chair of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus, I follow the work of the executive branch very closely on this issue over many years. I've had my critiques of President Bush, of President Trump, and yes, even of President Obama. <gasps> even Barry? Wow. But always, from, the Clinton, from President Clinton through the current administration, I've always felt that we are moving in the right direction in better protecting the, the country in cyberspace, even if too slowly and with a few bumps along the way. Well, today, we took a giant step backwards. Uh-oh. Cybersecurity, Mr. Speaker, is the economic and national security challenge of the 21st century. And as such, we need to be increasing our focusing, uh, focus on it, not weakening it. I've respected and admired the work of, of, three, of the three cybersecurity coordinators, the late Howard Schmidt, Michael Daniel, and President Trump's pick, Rob Joyce. And I'm sorry that their legacy is being tarnished today. Damn. Ouch. And, um, you know, I've already heard this spun as this is to weaken our response to Russia. That this was all part of Putin's plan to weaken our response to Russia. I, I do. I do find it suspect, though, when when actually even the president himself has talked about cyber and talked about yeah. these kind of things. Now I, we're cutting this. It's you know, a little perplexing. Uh, the one thing that I think the one thing that we could use when it comes to how we respond to cyber is uh, cutting of the middlemen because all of this thickness. Think about this. All these layers of abstraction from the actual IT work. Yeah. are an introduction of another layer of translation from IT to user. Do you follow what I'm saying? I like, do. It's, it's, we're, the, the, the administrative end of this problem is so, f- so greatly removed from the actual technical work being done that a phishing uh, attack has the same level of importance as, say, a Stuxnet to these people because they are so clueless as to how these things functionally work that they label a phishing attack a sophisticated nation-state attack. At the same time, Stuxnet is clearly a sophisticated state attack. Yes. And so I think maybe cutting some of the middlemen out could be good. Who knows, though? At least there's some. At least we have a good a person keeping their eye on the ball, right? I mean, yeah, well, definitely with John's mustache, he's gonna always he's gonna always gonna be sniffing things coming his way. <laughs> Heyo. Now we always got to make sure we're protecting the vote from the Russians, except for this news agency gets gets a little bit off the mark here. Now to the Russian hacking of our presidential election and efforts to protect your vote. You know, the Department of Homeland Security, we're told, is playing catch up, as fewer than half the states have gotten the on-site risk assessments they asked for. Now, the funny historical irony here is you might recall that the, the Department of Homeland Security played like this ridiculous political game to try to get the states to take them up on their auditing stuff. So that way the State Department, the, the, the Department of Defense, I should say, geez, the DHS, God, 
so confusing. So that way they could get a, a big piece of this cyber market. The, the Department of Homeland Security wants to be responsible responsible for protecting the homeland cybersecurity. That they feel right. like that's their territory. Yes. They don't feel like that is the job of the military or of the FBI, but of the Department of Homeland Security. And so during the election, leading up to the election, and a little bit after the election, they, they tried really, really, really hard to get different states to take them up on their offer to audit them. Do you recall this? I do. So some of those states did take them up after all. And now they've dropped the ball and they haven't gotten the audit done that they convinced them all to take. This definitely sounds like a government bureaucracy. Isn't it the worst ever? Uh, it's just, it's so classic. As fewer than half the states have gotten the on-site risk assessments they asked for on the vulnerability of an attack on their election systems. Some states, though, now taking steps themselves, like Illinois, where Russian hackers hit tens of thousands of voters in 2016. Now, let's carefully parse how this story is delivered to us uh, after they get done screwing up. That's not our silence. That's theirs. Yeah. You're not running the... Uh-huh. Well, we're having a problem, uh, audio problem with our, our reporters. You can clearly see. Uh, we went you mean to clearly Galesburg. here, but yeah. okay, fair enough. Berg, Illinois. That is uh, where, uh, unfortunately... They really, he really goes off the rails when he doesn't have his teleprompter to tell him what to say. He wouldn't make such a good podcaster. Boy, that is uh, where, uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the voter registration rolls of about 14,000 people were, officials said, hacked... Uh, by two IP addresses that were traced to the Netherlands that were then traced back to Russia. Now, if I recall correctly, so let's unpack this. So what they're talking about isn't the vote. It is registration information that the state held in a MariahDB that was using the default username and password and was turned on to accept Internet connections. So by default, when you install MariahDB, you set up a root username and password, well, the root user and password. And by default, it only accepts connections from 127.0.0.1, the local host. And then these agencies, these government agencies, changed it to accept remote connections so that way the contractors could connect and set up the database for them. And they never bothered to change it from just whatever the default password was or whatever. The, the stories are in previous uh, show note links. And that's the hacking that happened here. That's the voter hacking, is that these databases were connected to and downloaded. That's the big hack here. So keep that in mind as I, as I go through this story. The addresses that were traced to the Netherlands that were then traced back to Russia. That's quite the trace route they did there. Yeah. This was all part of uh, what uh, intelligence officials say was a Russian effort to hack the election back in 2016, that they successfully were able to get into the uh, voter registration site of Illinois. The Illinois officials, though, say they are defending the system for the election in the midterms. Here's a report on what they told us. Now they got it working. Galesburg, Illinois, a typical small town nestled in the flat farmlands of the Midwest. The Amtrak train to Chicago stops here three times a day. You mean the the train that the Trump administration wanted to cut from mid-America? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that's true, though. They wanted to cut all these, like, mid-station stops. Don't take away the trains. I love trains. I know. I didn't want to take it away. But why, are just, talking, why are you talking bad about trains, dude? I'm just saying, like, he brings up trains like, it stops here three times a day. Well, the government wanted to take that away. I like trains, though. I love trains. Trains good or planes bad? I think that's what it is. <laughs> 
The Amtrak train to Chicago stops here three times a day. But this unassuming slice of the American heartland, the site of an Abraham Lincoln-Stephen Douglas debate in 1858, was, in the last presidential election, invaded by the Russians. The FBI and the Department <laughs> of Homeland Security huh. say the state's voter registration rolls were hacked by Russian intelligence. So they do they do try to they do try to make it clear, I guess, the the voter registration rolls. And I think they're using that term to kind of keep it a little generic. In a sense, it's a, de- a declaration of war. Uh, it's, it's a cyber war. Stephen Sandvoss, the supervisor of the Illinois State Board of Elections, says the attack lasted for weeks. When a foreign government attacks your, your system, um, yeah, obviously that's, you know, they're up to no good. And elections being you know, a central uh, part of our democracy, you know, being attacked by a, a foreign government, um, yeah, I think everybody in the country should be concerned about that. As the national debate over election security focuses on ways to protect the integrity of our election system, Sandvoss and state officials know firsthand what it's like to be targeted by Moscow. I have some suggestions. Um, hmm. Don't put your database on the Internet with a uh, default username and password. Yeah. So remember, all this, this is, these, are, these are big words we're using. A nation attack. Uh, all of this, all of this really intense language for what was an IT misconfiguration, and it doesn't matter if it's Russians or North Koreans or Chinese or Iranians or weaponized Canadians. If you make a configuration mistake like that, there are people that are constantly scanning. In fact, there is a search engine database that we've talked about on TechSnap that scans and catalogs. All of these instances on the internet, and then anyone can just go query for a, a database with a default username and password, and get the results back. And people have even built exploit tools on top of this that automatically download that database, parse all of the Mariah DB servers that are listening on the internet, and automatically launch attacks against them while you click a few buttons and sit back. Those are tools that are free and available on GitHub right now. You do not have to be a weaponized specialist working for the government. And the way they frame this prevents actual rational discussion from what are simple, easy-to-understand facts. And, they, and when, we, when, we, when we get away from the facts and we get into the fear-mongering, we're never going to fix this problem. And that's why it really gets me, especially as somebody who's worked in IT for a long time. Right. And I, knew, you know, I never would have set up a client with some of these basic things like – I, I, if that would that would have been the kind of thing that if I would have come in during a security audit and seen that, that would have but, been embarrassing for the IT people that set it up like but that. But Chris, you're missing the point, man. You're you're not a government entity. If you're a government entity, then you do that. Sandvoss and state officials know firsthand what it's like to be targeted by Moscow. He says hackers struck the state's voter rolls starting in June of 2016 in the heat of the presidential election. At one point, hitting the system five times per second. In some cases, voter names, addresses, the last four digits of Social Security numbers, and other personal voting information were accessed. The board says up to 76,000 voter registrations were breached, with the greatest concentration, 14,121 in the city of Galesburg. That, almost half the city's population. Galesburg Mayor John Pritchard takes it in stride. You see, none of them are going to say, well, it, it wasn't the Russians. It was the fact that uh, our IT guy screwed up. He didn't follow up on checking what the contractors did. And the contractors just set it up because they're lazy. They set it up wrong. Uh, and we never audited it. He's not going to come out and say that. 
He's going to say, oh, man, yeah. Yeah, we're getting attacked by Putin while he's sitting in Moscow, but uh, we're taking it in stride. The Russians would be making a serious mistake if they came here (laughs) 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 with hostile intentions. And the funny thing is, it's so hilarious. I laugh about it all the time. Uh, Nothing gets fixed because of this. Yeah. Nobody gets in trouble. There's no accountability. No response. No one takes responsibility. Nothing gets fixed. No. It's the Russians. Uh, Give the DHS some more money. So that way they have more time to do those audits that they convince the states to take. Chris, all they need is just more money, and then they can fix this problem. All just we a need little bit is, more. All we need is money. Show me the money! All right, there was a story last week that I didn't include in the show because it, it seemed, well, it seemed like um, our Donald, our the Donald uh, um, masturbatory bullshit. But now it actually looks like it could be true. There may have been a mole in the Trump campaign for the FBI. We reported last week on the possibility that someone inside President Trump's campaign was a secret FBI source. Tonight, the House Intelligence Committee wants to know more. You mean the Devin reason Nunes why does? a lot of us were suspicious yeah. is this is uh, Representative Ron, but I bet he uh, I bet he's familiar with your buddy Devin. Yeah, because Glenn Simpson at one point, the head of Fusion GPS, testified that there was a human source inside the Trump campaign. All right, so that's data point number one. Glenn Simpson, who is the head guy of Fusion GPS, testified that they had a source from within the Trump campaign. So that's factoid like number one, and the reason why I'm, I'm uh, drawing attention to that is because that was testimony that was then later disputed testimony that was then later undisputed. It's really weird and it's easy to lose track of it. Based on his conversations with Christopher Steele. Okay, former chief assistant U.S. attorney and contributing editor at the National Review, Andrew McCarthy, joins us live with Reaction. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Okay, you've written this lengthy piece. I'm going to tweet it out because I think it's really important for people who aren't as familiar with this case to go through. You outline the facts, the names, the dates of everybody involved here. It's very informative. Now, Glenn Simpson, co-founder of Fusion, Fusion GPS, is a key player in this whole thing. He told lawmakers one thing kind of tried to backpedal, and now it sounds like he's back to saying, no, what I originally told you about the sourcing and the start of this whole investigation was right. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Shannon. The the testimony he gave was that Steele, who was the the former British spy who was the author of the dossier, Mm -hmm. uh, told him that the FBI told him that they had a source inside the campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, When that became a, a big controversy after he said it, he tried to walk it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way he walked it back was to try to throw it off on this guy Papadopoulos, who had had this conversation with the Australian diplomat, that whole story. It doesn't line up time-wise, because when he gave the testimony in August, that story was not published until about five months later. So it's highly unlikely he could have known about it. But what I learned this evening is that on the judiciary, the Senate Judiciary Committee's website, Simpson's lawyer, Simpson was asked by the committee, if you changed your mind about something you said, how come you didn't let us in on that? And the lawyer for Simpson gave a short letter to Chairman Grassley saying he stands by his testimony. So Papadop, which I always suspected, I think I said it in the show, may have just been a smokescreen all along. That where Papadopoulos got a little too drunk and, uh, oh, yeah, we've got this great info coming in from the Russians. And that was the thing that tipped off the FBI that they didn't need the dossier. That was what you call the media being a lapdog for the deep state. 
Fake news, everybody. It's real. It happened. Fake news. Right. <laughs> I don't know if that's that's just I love I love it. I love the fake news is even something we say, actually. I hate the terms like vlog and blog, but I think I'm getting into fake news. I'm, I'm all about it. Uh, but really what the, the whole Papadopoulos story didn't really ever seem that legit, that some random ass low, low level guy was bragging after he had too many drinks to some some ambassador in Australia wasn't that the story, and then that's how the FBI yeah. got tipped off. I never that always seemed like a that always seemed like a distraction. Uh, so you know, have you noticed, Chase? Maybe maybe it's just me, but it seems like there's a lot of leaks in the Trump White House. There's a few going on over there. Yeah, and so uh, one of these journalists got the got the wild idea. Get ready for this. Brace yourself. I'm waiting. Are you sitting? I'm ready. Yeah, I'm sitting. They had the wild idea to call up the leakers and ask them why they leak. Huh. Yeah. Go figure that one out. And so uh, here's what they had to say. Axios AM co-founder and CEO of Axios, uh, Jim Van. Hi, Jim. Good morning to you. Happy Monday. Good Talk morning. To me. <laughs> Talk to me about Axios is one big thing today. You had uh, Jonathan Swan had this uh, terrific item over the weekend about why this White House leaks. I mean, one of the reasons this hit is always so much fun and uh, Cable has so much to work with with Trump is there's more leaking in one week of, of the Trump White House than you might see in a year of a presidency. And so Swan had the clever idea to call up some of the most prolific leakers and ask them why they do it. What was telling was so many of them said it was about score settling, about mm-hmm. making sure that either they're, they're killing ideas or tamping down people who might be on the rise. I think this is a thing uh, that is particularly unique to Trump. I think other presidents have obviously had to deal with this. But because Trump is so responsive to what's in the media, it's a particular way to get to him is via the media. And so if you can if you can kind of make a big stink about something and make and make make a public scene, then it's likely you're going to either st- stop momentum of something or you're going to get it at least on Donald Trump's radar, which is probably a difficult thing to do. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if this culture would go back to his actual candidacy. And I wouldn't be surprised if people in his team were leaking stuff to the FBI and whoever else as they now leak to everybody else. Now he's in the White House. We are probably seeing a culture of people that leak around him. Yep. yep. That either they're, they're killing ideas or tamping down people who might be on the rise because they don't like the ideas. They don't like those people. I think part of that tone is obviously set at the top of the Trump uh, White House. The other thing is they do worry sometimes about ideas that are making it up to the boss that might get out. And so there's a lot of leaking that's done to try to terminate uh, those ideas before they become a reality. And I think that leaking is sort of one of the defining qualities of this presidency because you have this lens into a White House that's very very unusual. If you look back at previous presidencies, rarely do this many people tell you in real time what's actually happening, I especially agree. the ugly stuff. Usually they're oh, spinning totally. all oh, what a great leader there is and how everyone gets along. This White House, a lot of transparency for good and bad. Well, there's also a lot of people inside the White House right now that are looking internally to see who these leakers are, trying to sort of tamp, tamp that down. What exactly are these leakers doing to sort of cover their tracks to make sure they're not identified as the leakers in the White House? 
I mean, you just make sure that you have a good relationship with the reporter that you're dealing with and that you're not leaking something that only you would be uh, the person knowing it and that it'd be obvious that you're the one who knew it. Uh, funny thing, over the weekend, there was this meeting on Friday. Sarah Sanders, uh, press secretary, has a meeting, starts the meeting saying, I know somebody's going to leak this, then goes on to condemn people for uh, leaking that comment that the press aide made about John McCain. And within hours, it's leaked. Uh, it was on Axios, a, a full description of what happened in that meeting that she asked not to have leaked, knew would be leaked. It's leaked by a group of people uh, that included several leakers. And I think it's just a sort of a microcosm of what happens at a lot of these meetings. And by the way, it's not just a communications team. In a way, it's kind of great for us, though. You oh, know yeah. I mean? It gives us great content for yeah, sure. And it keeps yeah. everybody honest. One of the things that I believed in the Fire and Fury book that I took away from it, I didn't believe much. In fact, I've gone back over a few pages and been like, that doesn't hold up. But there was one thing that struck me as legit is Donald Trump's social network is not Twitter. It's actually the phone. He spends a lot of time in the evenings on the phone talking to people that he trusts. Uh-huh. And it's something he's done for a really long time. And the way it was described in the book, it, it rang really true for me. So when I saw this story from uh, New York Magazine this week, I, I actually kind of buy it. So did you catch this headline this morning? Here it is. Donald Trump and Sean Hannity like to talk before bedtime. Makes you want to read the article, right? Well, it's a new piece by Olivia Nunzi in the New York Magazine. And it outlines Fox News, the Fox News hosts pretty incredible relationship with the president, friendship. We know how much of an advisor is he to the president. Daily calls that are sometimes a major headache, she reports in the West Wing. Brian Stelter, our senior media correspondent and host of Reliable Sources, is here for more. The headline makes you want to read it. And then what do you think about this? Sean Hannity and Donald Trump. That's a huge conflict of interest. You think so? For Hannity? Total. Well, for who? For Fox. Oh, hmm. It seems like where Fox is sitting, it makes Hannity super valuable because now they have an in with the president. Totally. No, no, no. I get that part. And I get the why, the, the angle, and you know, they may not have a problem with it per se, but it, it, it obviously shows no impartiality, right? I mean, at that point, you know, and that's where it's, I don't know, it's awkward, I think. I agree. It's definitely awkward. <laughs> it is extremely awkward. Hey, Sean, how you doing? You know what else you know? is awkward is you notice how I paused it and neither one of these two people are looking at each other. Like, they, like their body language would suggest they don't actually like each other. Uh, anyways, uh, so <laughs> I, I'll play this just so we can talk about it. When you read it. <laughs> I don't really like seltzer water, but I want to discuss what he has to say. There are some really stunning parts. One thing that struck me near the beginning of the piece is when Olivia writes about Sean Hannity filling a void left by Steve Bannon. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to think about Hannity's role as an informal White House advisor, someone who's channeling Trump's base or a specific part of Trump's base uh, that the president may need to be reminded about. Uh, Bannon always viewed himself as as the voice of Trump's base. Uh, In some ways, Hannity sees himself the same way. I think this piece is really a view into the way Trump world works with these uh, frequent phone calls between Trump and Hannity. Usually it's Hannity calling Trump after the show, Sometimes the other way around. It really supports the idea that uh, Hannity is an advisor to Trump, and Trump is a producer of Hannity's show. It's a that is weird, huh? Two ways. Yeah. Talk about that. That to me is the weird, awkward thing. Well, you know, remember Trump also is coming from an entertainment background, and yeah. and, and the more he hears stuff about him, the more he likes it. I mean, it's been proven that way. So, you know. It's it's definitely awkward, especially in light of the current events that are happening. It's 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 very awkward. But then again, 
you know, Mr. Sean Hannity hasn't been, you know, shying away from being awkward, especially when it comes to <laughs> Cohen and, and some of these other things. Now, Rudy's been a bit awkward. So he had this whole thing uh, about the uh, Stormy Daniels payments. And then there was also some recent hoopla about AT&T hiring Cohen. We're going to turn now to politics and Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, making headlines again overnight. Yeah, he's walking back some more comments he made about whether his client, President Trump, was involved in a politically charged merger involving AT&T. He also made news on the timing of a possible face-to-face between the president and special counsel Robert Mueller. ABC's White House correspondent Tara Palmieri is at the White House this morning with more. Good morning, Tara. Hey, Tara. Good morning, Adrian and Dan. I spoke to Giuliani about some of those more controversial comments he's made over the past few days and got an update on the Russia investigation. Oh, good. This morning, Rudy Giuliani walking back claims that President Trump tried to block the Time Warner AT&T deal. In an interview with the Huffington Post published Friday, Giuliani said, quote, the president denied the merger. They didn't get the result they wanted. All right. So did you catch Uh that? Yeah. But overnight, Giuliani telling ABC News over the phone the exact opposite. That's so funny. So I've been thinking about this. Because this is the what second or third time this has occurred <laughs> with yeah. Giuliani within like two weeks. At this point, I'm filing this under super intentional, super misdirectional to cause confusion to f with the media. This is totally a, uh, a page out so of the, the I'm playbook. Say, I'm gonna say I'm, last week I called it that this is Giuliani's attempt to yep. take control of the narrative. Yep, and it, they'd rather be running it than having the media run it now. The thing he said about uh, the president paying back uh, Cohen's uh, payments to Stormy Daniels, Yes. now that's official. It's real. Now it's on paper, clear as day. President Trump's financial disclosure report was just released, and it shows his debt to personal attorney Michael Cohen. Did you hear that Windows machine in the background? Yeah, someone... That sounded like a Windows XP machine. I'm going to go back there. Report was just released, and it shows his debt to personal attorney Michael Cohen. The financial disclosure was not in last year's report, and it acknowledged that Trump has repaid Cohen for expenses that the lawyer incurred during the 2016 presidential election. Now, what it didn't state explicitly is what the payments were for, like hush money paid to porn star Stormy Daniels. It did say how much, though, a value of between 100. Uh, one hundred one thousand and two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I do whine because so, I want to win. So this basically proves everything, mm-hmm. and that uh, Donald Trump was lying on Air Force One. Yes, right. Unless he could maintain he didn't know what the money was used for. Cohen came to me and said he need repayment, and uh, I did it. That I've, could be I've his... no. Well, I thought he said he had no idea of anything, and uh, to talk to Cohen. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm I I'm and I'm not trying to do a catch, you know, like aha, got you moment. I'm just saying a lot of people seem to overlook these things and go, "Oh, it's no big deal. It's okay. I'm a big fan of of the president. It's not a big deal." But this is a big deal. I mean, all is these it? is it? Well, it's just another What's the deal? The deal is how can we believe anything? Okay. So the deal is he lies. That's a the lot. deal. I don't know. I don't know. I Yeah. And, you know, I I need to hear more I have, information. I, have, I know. And I've honestly, you know, tried a lot of times on this show to say, you know, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt here. You know, I'm going to, you know, you know, I understand it does, how things I mean, can spin. His words were, I have no, right. I have no idea. And you know what? And I understand that that lying has gone back multiple presidencies. I know it's not unique to our current president. I, I get that completely. But that being said, when you know when he comes out and says these things, you know, it's like, yeah, it's fake news, it's fake news, it's fake news. And it's not. 
and it, it, it undermines the actual good reporting of the media yeah. and the actual good people that are out there working every day. Well, I think, I think it's, too, it's, yeah. I mean, that's one take. Yeah. I think the other take is it shows you how desperate their situation may have been behind the scenes. Right. That when Julie, Giuliani came in, he must have advised them. He must have said, you have to just change this because this is how they're going to eat you alive if yeah. you keep lying totally. about this. Yeah, and, but it doesn't stop. I think that's an interesting tell, yeah. though. Uh, absolutely. I agree with that. Now, uh, I want to talk about the big story this week. and the, that You mean the huge story? It's really huge. Um, President Donald Trump announced it several weeks ago, and that was that the United States Embassy would be opening up in Jerusalem. Because it just creates, you know, they just, they just crop up out they, of nowhere. They, they got a U-Haul. And yeah. they, they uh, actually, no, I'm sorry, uh, white Toyota pickup trucks. And they brought up. A, <laughs> this clearly hasn't been in the works. No, for it years. has not. No, no clearly. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's gone pretty smooth. Uh, nobody's really had any issues. There's been no protest. And wait, oh, what's sorry, What's that? Uh, Chris, there, there has been. actually. Oh. Outrage boiled over in the Gaza Strip today. While just 60 miles north, that seemed like a world away, ovations for President Trump in Jerusalem. Daughter Ivanka helping do the honors, unveiling the new embassy seal. We welcome you officially and for the first time to the embassy of the United States here in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Thank you. I have a a weird side question. Why did she have to add the part the capital of Israel? Well, because that's been in dispute, you see. That's been part of the dispute, yeah. So she's okay. making it clear that now the United States recognizes this as the capital. Okay. The capital uh, of J- Jerusalem being Israel's capital has been sort of something that the United States wouldn't commit to as a bit of a negotiating bargain with the Palestinians and, and Hamas. So we, were gonna, we, were, we were pretending like we were willing to not recognize that in order to get everybody to play ball, and now right. we've just basically dropped that pretense. I mean, obviously it does feel like the, the spiking of the football in the face of, of people people and and also like saying you know you know sorry you know it it, it feels very yeah abrasive-ish israel thank you here in jerusalem the capital of israel thank you also there her husband and middle east advisor jared kushner jared kushner has really been israel's largest advocate inside the trump white house until bolton came along we've shown that the united states of america We'll do what's right, and so we have. President Trump appeared in a recorded message saying the embassy move from Tel Aviv keeps a campaign promise. The United States, under President Harry Truman, became the first nation to recognize the state of Israel. Today, we officially opened the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. Congratulations. Jerusalem is a divided city. Palestinian Arabs in the east, Jewish Israelis in the west. Today, the U.S. recognized Israel's claim to all of the city. Mm, See, that's a key fact right there. Forever. President Trump is now entering into Israel's history books. Previous U.S. administrations had promised to do this move, moving the embassy here to Jerusalem, but had deferred the decision, fearing it could cause an outbreak of violence in the volatile Middle East. And today, that's exactly what happened. Tear gas and bloodshed in the Gaza Strip, where some two Wait, million Palestinians. Was that dropped by drone? Yeah, yeah. So let's get into this. So the protests are pretty bad because, um, you know, the protesters, first time I've seen the Palestinians, that. they have rocks and the Israelis have snipers and drones. So it's a totally different set of, um, um, what would you call that? Um, 
if you like a tactical analysis, like Israel has the huge advantage. Horseshoes and hand grenades? Yeah, pretty much. Richard, you've been on the ground now for, what, 24, 48 hours. Can you walk us through what you're seeing at this moment? What's changed, what you're expecting? Well, I can tell you what's happening right behind me right now. If you'll notice, there's some white clouds dropping. That is tear gas, and it was just dropped by an Israeli drone. I know it's very bright against the sky, so you probably can't see the drone. Uh, we can with our naked eye. Uh, it is, and that's why you're also seeing a lot of people running. The ambulances are here. Uh, the Israelis are trying to uh, disperse these crowds because they don't want to repeat what happened yesterday. Uh, this area is... 60 were killed the day before this report. Right on the Israeli border. Behind me there, where the people are moving away from, is the actual Israeli border fence. And what has been happening is as people go toward that fence, they have been shot. And uh, more than 50 people were shot yesterday, according to the- It's been raised to 60. Palestinian Health Ministry, and uh, about 2,700 people injured. So- 2700 this is still an active protest uh, area that is now it's it's uh it's 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 about it's about the proportional response really so uh, uh the fence that they refer to is really a wide area it's not one fence it's a it's a barrier yeah um, several layers yeah, of barrier yeah, yeah. and there's a bit of wire fence and what the palestinians are trying to do is they're just trying to go claim their bit of fence without dying but the Israelis on the other side have snipers. NBC's Matt Bradley was there. Tens of thousands of Palestinian protesters have been trying since this morning to breach that border into Israel. The reaction from Israel with sniper fire and artillery has led to more deaths here. Cameras captured protesters falling after being shot. Many in Gaza feel they have nothing to lose. Better to die for a principle, their claim to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to say that Israel doesn't have a right to defend themselves. They're a legally recognized nation, and every sovereign nation has the right to defend their territory. Uh, but it's, it's really about the level of response, which was brought up recently at uh, a White House press briefing. Very quickly, the French Foreign Minister Raj said about what's taking place in Gaza, he urged Israeli authorities to exercise discretion and restraint. So to be clear, does the U.S. not agree with the French? that Israeli authorities should exercise discretion and uh, restraint. We believe that Hamas is responsible for what's going on. So now, Hamas is a terrorist organization that uh, has more, is moral enemies with Israel. Uh, and so the U.S. position here is that it's really all these terrorists. But when you look at the numbers, it's clearly civilians. It's, it's people that are taking out of school. They're, they're trying to make sugar bombs because the only thing they have is rocks and sugar. It's, it's clearly a civilian effort. And the rationale of the United States here reminds me a, bit, uh, a, a little bit of a parent who beats his child, who blames the child for getting beaten. Exercise discretion and uh, restraint. We believe that Hamas is responsible for what's going on. So there's no responsibility beyond that on the Israeli authorities. Kill at will. What, what I'm saying is that we believe that Hamas, as an organization, is engaged in cynical action that's leading to these deaths. Let me ask if I can, then following up on Kelly Sadler today. See, I really don't have an issue with the Israeli defense argument other than it needs to be proportional. When the Israeli army has drones and snipers and the backing of the most powerful nation in the country, in the world, the United States, and the protesters have rocks and their biggest aspiration is to grab a piece of the wire fence, it feels disproportional to be 
droning them and snipering them. It's it it you, the defense argument seems ludicrous. It'd be like it'd be like if I beat one of my children into a pulp for breaking a rule. Like I I can't claim it's for their own good. That's it's 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 indefensible. It's too extreme. It's it, it the the response is not proportional. Israel has revoked the work permit for Human Rights Watch's director in the country. Well, now that's a bit of an issue. Authorities explained the decision was based on a dossier that was compiled on Omar Shakir's activities over the course of the last decade. Shakir's work involves reporting on Israel and the Palestinian territories. He has held his post since April last year. Well, Israel has given him 14 days to leave the country. We spoke to the ousted director, who told us that the real motive behind the decision is to disturb his organization's work. I would, that, would, that would seem Yeah, like that it. would make sense. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would, that would. Rising tensions in the Middle East, Israel and Iran attacking each other overnight. This has been another thing that seems to have happened uh, since uh, really the U.S. pulled out of the Iran nuke deal. It seems like that there has been a stepping up on the part of Israeli military on striking Syria and Iran targets. Israel claiming Iran began with Iran launching missiles toward its troops. Actually, rockets. And what would be the first direct attack from Iran on Israel? Our chief foreign correspondent, Terry Moran, is tracking all of this for us. Good morning, Terry. That really is uh, a bit of sloppy writing in her uh, prompter there, because there is a massive difference between a military missile and homemade rockets. That's right, Robin. Good morning. This is a dramatic escalation in a dangerous confrontation between those two mortal enemies, Iran and Israel, and it all unfolded overnight. First, Iranian forces, as you say, inside Syria, fired 20 rockets into the Israeli-controlled Golan Heights. They targeted Israeli military positions. For months, Iran and Israel, they've been fighting something of a shadow war inside Syria. But Israel says this is the first time Iran, which has sent thousands of troops to Syria to prop up the regime of Bashar al-Assad, has directly attacked across that border. Officials say there were no casualties. And in response, Israel then launched its biggest attack in Syria since 1974. 28 F-15s and F-16s fired more than 60 missiles, striking dozens of Iranian military targets in Syria. Israel says wrong, weapons depots and intelligence sites were among those targets. Should be good. Should be good. This, this is the kind of stuff that I think about when I'm like, to what end? Mm-hmm. I mean, to what end? Mm-hmm. I mean, what? You want to blow, obviously, I guess, your enemy off the face of the earth, right? I mean, that, yeah. is, that, is that your logical conclusion in all this? And, and while I don't really have a strong position on recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and moving the embassy there, right. yeah. it seems like we are just getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into what is a religious blood feud. Yeah. It's a really disappointing thing to watch. And, and that's where I, I, I always thought, you know, you know, we can like learn to respect each other and talk to each other. And, you know, and instead, you know, we, we shouldn't be killing each other. And I and I know uh, and System T is right in the chat. You know, war is hell and profitable. I mean, yeah. I mean, you look we, we've talked about the military industrial complex. We, we've talked about lots of interesting transactions over the over the years, you know. And so when you see something like this, I know it's you say it's not surprising, you know, quote unquote. But it's still tragic, and it's still terrible, and it's something that, honestly, if I had a magic wand, I, I you'd wipe this away because this is yeah. not how we're supposed to be as people. I feel like this situation with the Palestinians and the situation in Yemen are the, one of the two largest tragedies that are really getting very little attention, at yeah. least here in the States. Yeah. 
One thing that's getting a lot of attention, though, is the fact that it looks like North Korea is trying to play hardball, trying to get a little leverage in their negotiations with uh, Trump. North Korea now says it may call off Kim Jong-un's meeting with President Trump. <gasps> what? Shocker. Sh- Whoa, this is breaking news. So surprised. Fox News, CNN News Alerts. Holy oh, my God. Smokes. Unbelievable. And don't forget CBS, ABC. This is CNN Breaking, breaking news. news from John Dickerson. And a Fox News alert for John Dickerson. North Korea now says it may call off Kim Jong-un's meeting with President Trump over U.S. demands to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. North Korea's first vice minister of foreign affairs said in a statement overnight, quote, if the United States is trying to drive us into a corner to force our unilateral nuclear abandonment, his country would have to, quote, reconsider our proceeding to the North Korea-U.S. summit. That is in response to something that John Bolton said in an interview that I'll play a little bit of uh, in the overtime. Yeah. It's one of those situations where you know you're 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 just you're you're first off you're you're trying to ha- do something that's obviously never been done before with a sitting president sitting down with a North Korean leader of any era, right? And so you know you're North Korea, you're saying well and. You know, we don't 100% obviously know their motives in this whole situation, especially in regards to South Korea. But let's just say, let's play a what-if scenario for a minute. Mm-hmm. You're North Korea, and you're maybe you're genuine. You, let's say you're finally genuine. You want to make a change. You want to go a positive direction. And then you, you constantly hear from the other side, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. That's not new, per se. Is it? Here's, what, here's my thinking. Okay. My, and I could be completely wrong. My current framework for viewing the North Korea story is I think they were getting a little bit of side money. I believe John Bolton when he says they're getting a little bit of side money from Iran. And now that the Iran deal is in place and all that, that that side money has been cut off, even though they were out of it. All the other nations are still in. And... They they devastated their test site. You know, like like now there was another yeah, report that came out. Like they even moved the mountain a little bit. So they've completely devastated their test site. Their money's been cut off from their Iran yeah. sugar daddy. Yeah, it's possible that that they have no choice, and now they just want to try to get the best deal possible. And so now they have an opportunity to play a little bit of hardball. I, I don't see. know. Yeah, but then. That's something you. I mean, you wouldn't just call off the talks all the, all together. Yeah, I'm starting. That's why I think it's hardball. Yeah, but I am starting to think this is not going to go the direction Trump wants. I am starting to smell that. Well, I think you know. Well, he, so here's the ultimate question: Does he go back to calling him Little Rocket Man? They're still playing nice. They say they say they are continuing on. That the summit will continue. Their plans are to move forward. Major Garrett is at the White House. Major, what are you hearing from administration officials? Do they believe this is a negotiating ploy? Well, good morning. Today, President Trump finds himself in a situation many North Korea experts predicted he might in the weeks leading up to this potential summit. What is that? A place where North Korea is showing hesitation and putting new demands on the table. Now, for months, I think it's fair to say President Trump has been the unpredictable force in these conversations. Now, Kim Jong-un is playing the same game. How is he playing it? By trying to redefine what it means to abandon nuclear weapons and how evidence of that abandonment would be confirmed. North Korea objects to U.S. inspections, U.S. destruction of its underlying nuclear weapons technology. So far, all the White House will say is that it will continue to coordinate closely with allies and independently react and judge what the North Koreans have said. As That's an interesting way to put that. 
I think they just want to confirm what's going on over there. Yeah, maybe uh, media reports are have it slightly off is what they're saying. Yeah. I'm not sure, Mr. Chase. Not I'm sure not, either. I'm not sure. Well, buddy, what do you say? Uh, that's some heavy stuff. What, yes. Should we just shake it off a little bit, get a little, get our sacks going on you in know, here? You know, I'm good to kind of stretch it out, reach deep into the sack, and go ahead and say hi to Club 33. Hey, Club 33, I love you guys. Thank you for heading on over Man, to that Patreon. that is nice. That's sweet. That's I do. Nice of you. These guys are great. I talk to them every week. And give them ideas. And by the way, uh, today's uh, art for the Club 33 post on Patreon was from me. Yeah? Yeah. Really? I, I did some modifi- modifying, some little Photoshop. If wow. you can identify the picture, you get bonus points I'll give you a little week. bed here. I'll, yeah, give you a right. little, uh, here. I'll give you a little music bed. There you go. I like this. This is yeah. good. Yeah. Veritona writes in and says, hey, would rather it is the U.S. pulling out of Syria, Africa, and Israel, but doubt anything save a catastrophic catastrophic natural disaster nothing will stop the military industrial complex from total world annihilation easy for you to say i know that sucks Uh, on the home front uk is finally waking up to the mass murder going on in gaza and trying to do the right thing quote unquote by trying to get an independent inquiry started but of course are being obstructed by the united states who has called the massacre israeli quote restraint Really, it beggars belief that the U.S. establishment can cry foul of Russia meddling in U.S. politics when the rest of the world can see Israel is demonstrating how the tail wags the dog. Hmm. Over a dozen journalists have been shot and killed, and even the doctors without borders are calling for restraint. Add this to the EU's disenchantment with the U.S. over GDPR and now the U.S.-Iran sanctions by not using dollars anymore for Iranian oil trading. I saw that story. I almost don't even believe that. So just a side note. Yeah, go for it. The story there is that uh, the EU may continue to buy oil. I I didn't read the whole thing, so I could be getting this wrong. But they're going to buy oil from Iran, and they're just not going to use the U.S. greenback. That seems like that would really piss off the U.S. Uh, Yeah. I'll I'll try to toss a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, one has to wonder how long this can continue before the American people see what the rest of the world sees and does something about it. And I think that's weirdly what, you know, when it comes down to, you know, Getting to those media sources is just an opinion, you know, and and actually engaging in, in getting clear information. And I think that's very vital, especially now more than ever. And then finally, Casey writes and says, I think we should be pulling out of every single war zone that we can. I really hope that we can get something accomplished with the DRPK. That's North Korea. And I think that it was an extremely stupid mistake to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Hey, if you want to be a part of Club 33, there's a couple spots open right now. Head on over to patreon.com slash unfilter. And if you are a member of Club 33, always look for my Patreon message that I send out exclusive to Patreon Club 33 members every Wednesday morning, yeah. and you can be part of the sack. And just a bit of admin, uh, we mentioned last week that we had about 113 patrons that were not current, that their cards have been declined or something like that, you know, as things Actually, change. Actually, quite a few people uh, yeah. re-refreshed. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're down to like, I still, I think it's somewhere in the 90s still. So it's it's still, it's like low 90s, uh, high 80s. So if you have been a patron for a while and you haven't logged in and checked your account, maybe do that for us because uh, it makes the numbers look a little off. It looks like things are going a little better than they are when it's nearly 100 folks. Now, uh, we do have a great new batch of patrons that have come on, like super rock-solid support to step up and close some of the gap. We have 11 patrons this week to announce. Yay! Yeah. So you guys will be getting your thank you at the top of the overtime here in in just a little bit. So thank you very much. But in the meantime, one more, I guess. Uh, it's a it's a double. 
It is kind of exciting because now it's time to get into the high note. Mommy needs a joy. Mommy. Now, uh, you remember last week I said I think we're going to start to see a trend about cannabis helping with autism? Yes. Well, boy, did I have a smattering of clips to choose from this week. I, I think I saw at least three separate reports on cannabis helping autism. It's, it's, it's picking up the story. It's funny how these come in spurts, right? Remember we had that 11-year-old girl for a little while that kept going well, around? Well, it's, it's obviously... And then it was like this military. Yeah, a lot. obviously people listen to our show. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, we re- thank you so much for all you uh, guys out there and gals that yeah. listen. And now it's now we're on the autism train. Here we go, Here everybody. We go. Another mom whose life has been changed. They've moved across the country to save their child with pot. Since marijuana was legalized in Colorado, it has been touted as a treatment for all kinds of physical and mental ailments, and that includes autism. Tonight, our Rick Salinger introduces us to a family that says marijuana has been a miracle drug for their son. Yeah, the news is here to talk to you. Colt may look like your ordinary 10-year-old boy. But his family feels there has been a transformation. They credit medical marijuana for taming his severe autism. They had been living in Arizona. I'm sitting at my wit's end crying, not knowing what I'm going to do for my son. But I knew he could have a better quality of life. Stories and videos of autistic children harming themselves, then finding relief through marijuana, have brought many to this state. I knew that if I came here to Colorado, that I would be protected, that I could get Colt his medical card, and I could start treating him with cannabis. Colt qualified due to a rare skin condition. His mother began giving it to him in different forms, vaping and homemade tinctures with strong levels of the psychoactive component THC. I'd make this probably about once a week. From their own plants. Try to grab what I think is 28 grams. Jamie showed us how she bakes. All right, first off, what you think, you buy yourself a scale. I mean, serious? She did have it on. Didn't she have it on a scale there? Well, I don't know. She's like, what I think is 28. I think she's a little nervous. Uh, Uh, Let's see. Jamie showed. No, you're right. She doesn't. She doesn't use a scale. Get a scale for God's sake! If you want to like be exact with what you're doing, She's like I don't care. Notice how she bakes into the oven. It sounds like he said, "Notice how she bakes," doesn't it? Right <laughs> what I think is 28 grams. Jamie showed us how she bakes into the oven. Great. This is Can how you bake. Oh, so there's a the scale there. With coconut oil to create what she considers a miracle drug for her son. They literally just walked you through in this report. How to make <laughs> pot oil. Thank you, CBS Denver. Can you believe this? <laughs> what a This it, is the years we live in now. Chris, Chris, five years ago, if I would have told you that you just a watched, local news a local news is gonna tell you how yeah. to make your own t- tinctures, would you believe me? You'd be like, shut up. They actually just walked you through the steps. Maybe that's uh, why New York City is planning to make big changes in how they enforce marijuana infractions. If you're spotted doing this, smoking marijuana in New York City, you will be it could lead to your arrest even under the relaxed marijuana enforcement of the administration of Bill de Blasio. But he made clear today that's all changing. That's why today I'm announcing that the NYPD will overhaul and reform its policies related to marijuana enforcement in the next 30 days. By this time next month, the NYPD will no longer arrest people for smoking marijuana in public. Cy Vance, 
The Manhattan District Attorney this afternoon announced he won't prosecute such cases. The grandchild of stop and frisk is marijuana arrest. This seems like actually a pretty big deal. And everybody seems like they're on board with this idea. You know, for, for New York City, that that's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. That is a total huge deal because the reverend there said that is true. And it is true. I mean, stop and frisk replaced this. And, you know, cops were using the slightest of reasons to, to harass people. Mm-hmm. And, and now that's gone. Now, or going away. you as a connoisseur of local news, I think will mm-hmm. notice there is a certain excitement in this report and it always comes back down to that money, about making that money off of cannabis. And yep. again, this is what really, in the good old U.S. of A, is going to drive legalization across the country. You can, you can hear how once they get a taste, they're all in. Yep. It's, bigger than like, it's bigger than gambling. It's, it's money. And the, the excitement runs everywhere. On News 5, your first look inside one of the first medical marijuana growers in Ohio. East Lake's cultivation plant, one of just 12 of its kind here, isn't just making progress on its facility, it's ready to start hiring. Our Tara Molina takes us on a tour of that plant tonight. They broke ground just a few months ago, but you can see Buckeye Relief here in Eastlake has already come a long way. Ooh, we are excited, aren't we? Wow. Yeah. Ooh, this is exciting. Time to go to Ohio. Months ago, but you can see Buckeye Relief here in Eastlake has already come a long way. They're set to be up and running by the end of this summer, and they're going to need some new employees to do it. Seeing it now, it's almost hard to believe. The first conversation about bringing medical marijuana to Eastlake happened just about two years ago. Nobody's ever seen anything like what we're doing here because this is the highest technology ever deployed. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here for a second. So this is something that I've noticed as I've watched these stories over and over and over again is the security requirements of these grow operations are so extreme that they often involve bringing in new kinds of security and uh, biometrics, in- innovations and, to building yeah. design that are not common and are expensive and bring in expensive contractors. And it's just great, 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 great for the city. And that's so that's one of the interesting things is not only is it bringing in a certain kind of construction, but it's a real premium kind that the cities are just happy to take a cut from. Nobody's ever seen anything like what we're doing here because this is the highest technology ever deployed. And in just a few more months, that technology will be at work inside these rooms with a company that will be among the first cultivating medical marijuana in Ohio. Uh, We will complete in July. But a lot happened in the two years leading up to this. Buckeye Relief forged a partnership with the city of Eastlake, a city whose mayor says needed a boost. It's going to help out with our economic growth. They purchased this land. We sold the property for $300,000. Applied for a license with the state and... We broke ground on December 1st, the day after we received our provisional cultivator license. They were the top scoring applicant of the 185 who submitted one of 12 awarded with provisional licenses to operate level one cultivation facilities. We're pioneer. You know, we're in with the, the top group in the whole state. And owner Andy Rayburn says he's waiting on two more now, a dispensary license expected at the end of this month and an extraction license expected at the end of June, which would mean more jobs here in Eastlake. 
So, Chris, you know, I've been thinking maybe it's time for us to start uh, <laughs> Northwest Cannabis Consultants, LLC. Jeez. And uh, we help I- implore, uh, you know, new technologies we and can, networks. We can help uh, them deploy IT infrastructure. We can help them deploy online media presence. Social, you know, podcasting. Who's going to be the first YouTube large producing. cannabis shop to crack podcasting? We can help them do it. You and Absolutely. I. Absolutely. Northwest Cannabis it. Consulting. LLC. Let's figure, let's figure <laughs> that out, yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, like we said, next week is going to be a little bit of a weird one, so why not tune in and see how it goes? We'll do it on a Wednesday. Uh, hopefully everything goes okay. You can find out by watching live, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for those live times. Yes. We're going to give it a go, trying to keep that updated as I'm on the road, but you can always follow us on the Twitter to get a little more current taste of what's happening. Find Chase over at... N-U-N-E-S. Nice. I'm the verified checkmark one, not, not not the Devin one. No, yeah. I'm the real legit one. Yeah. You can also check me out over, over at geekgamer.tv. All right. Throwing a lot of pinball content up there. So I if like you that. love pinball, you love geeky and gaming stuff, please come on over and check it out. I will. Chris, what about you? You me? do the Twitter stuff. Little People can uh, get ready for your trip and sure. follow you along. Yeah. In fact, if uh, you're on my route to Austin, Texas, I'd love to say hi. Hey. I love meeting up with you on Filter Audience at Chris LAS on Telegram and on Twitter. If you're in my route, I'll have the tracker, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover. Also, a plug for the show page, unfiltered.show. All the links for everything we talked about today, unfiltered.show slash 280 and slash subscribe for all the ways to get the show every single week. The overtime's coming up, but if you got to go, I just want to say right here, right now, thanks so much for making yeah, it this week's episode guys. of the Unfiltered Show. There is a bunch of more stuff in the overtime. Yes. It's dense. There's dessert. It's high protein. Yes. But in the meantime, if you're ready to go and you got to get out of here, Well, then I think, hopefully, we'll see you back here next next week. (laughs) Fuck the EU. I just can't. I do wine because I want to win. by one. I, I believe there's been a misunderstanding. The, the show's not over yet. No. No. It's over. Oh! Brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash unfiltered. And I know that each of you understand you have the power. Stay woke. Who, me? No, you. Thank you to our patrons. We've got new ones this week. Oh, yeah! Thank you to Sir Charles, Katrina, or Lauren. I'm going to just go way off on that one. Rags, Eric, Travis, Wayne, Matthew, Chad, Anna, and Nico.jpg. That's a unique one. Thank you for being our new patrons this week. You know it matters more than ever right now. As we've recently discovered, about 100 accounts were not current and so the new support helps offset some of that. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. This here segment dedicated to you. Dedicated to you for being so damn awesome. All of our current patrons, future patrons, and anybody who just wants a little extra content loves the show. This segment is dedicated to you. And thank you to our new patrons for keeping us going. It is much appreciated. You are the oil of our otherwise clunky old 
machine. I don't know where I was going with that. And I should have thought that through before I opened the old mouth. But uh, when did that ever stop me before? <laughs> Let's move on and talk about spies and cyber espionage in one of the world's most popular centers. It's obviously the target of nation states, people in their grandma's basement, and script kitties all over the world. And of course, I'm talking about Wisconsin. When that flashlight happens, people lose their jobs. You're looking at real-time cyber attacks happening every second. Those little virtual nuclear explosions are hitting Milwaukee, they're hitting Sheboygan, they're hitting Green Bay. Byron Franz, a special agent in the FBI's Milwaukee division. I'm going to pause right here. Let's break down what's already happened because this is thick. Uh, So a local uh, WISN ABC affiliate is talking to an FBI field agent and up on a really crappy low-quality LCD television they have the FireEye, or whoever it is, live threat map. You know, that flash thing that has a little pew, 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 pew going off on it. And they're talking about uh, how that's representative of cyber nukes. Boygan, they're hitting Green Bay. Byron Franz, a special agent in the FBI's Milwaukee division, works daily to keep local businesses safe from spies. This is really a hot spot. Yes, it is. Wisconsin is definitely known to the people who want to steal. Um, all right. Okay. So what's about to happen, and I just need to mentally prepare you for this, is they're going to build the case that Wisconsin is one of the most attacked places in not the state, I mean, not the country, but the world. Wisconsin is the target of the world because why? Because this guy has a budget. That's why. A hot spot. Yes, it is. Wisconsin is definitely known to the people who want to steal technology because Wisconsin makes the things that makes the engine of the United States go. Now she's going to give us some examples. So think about it. With all of our major manufacturers, hospitals, universities, and financial institutions. You mean the things that every single city in the United States has? Uh, So she's standing outside of a U.S. bank. She's standing outside of a generic basic bitch hospital. And she just generically mentions manufacturing, which are things every single country and just about every single nation have in common. Hospitals, universities... And financial institutions. Wisconsin is one of the biggest targets in the country. Global spies are stealing information, costing companies money and jobs. So the Chinese hackers, Russian hackers, Iranian hackers, even U.S. hackers, they take this information, send an email over to you, and hope that you click on the attachment. This is the real cyber dystopia that we now live in, is simple acts like cyber... um, Let me back up. Simple acts like email phishing are now labeled as cyber nuke attacks that are going after our industry that require a permanent FBI presence to monitor and tackle. Phishing emails, which can be generated by shitty Python scripts and sent out at the millions. This is truly a dystopia where the morons who don't even understand how this stuff works are now running the institution. And this is what we get. Send an email over to you and hope that you click on the attachment. I received this phishing email. I click on it. Email has literally been around for more than 30 years. And attachments have been around for more than 20 years. This is nothing new. You can go back to ZDTV and watch a young Leo Laporte 
advise you not to open attachments back in the 90s. Nothing is new about this. hope that you click on the attachment. I received this phishing email. Yep. I click on it, and that could cost my employer millions of dollars, potentially. Yeah, and your job, too. An energies technologies <laughs> company, AMSC, shut down its Middleton plant after a Chinese company stole software. More than 700 people lost their jobs. You see, what a, corporate, what a corporation uses as a public excuse for their actions can't be cited as evidence. It can be a data point. So you can say, all right, XYZ Corporation at one point claimed they were shutting down because of a cyber attack. You can say that. But you can't say it's with absolute certainty, just like in the case of the Sony attack, where it was clearly an internal leak because they knew the exact UNC pass of the Windows file servers down to like the exact directory structures, the file permissions. You don't just come across that kind of stuff. These people knew that stuff. They knew how to get those files. And then they took them out on thumb drives. And it's clear that's what happened. But publicly, for insurance reasons, PR reasons and many others... Publicly, Sony blamed North Korean hackers. You remember the interview? Remember that whole thing around the interview? That was all bullshit. It was all bullshit. It was an internal leak at Sony. You can even find people involved who on YouTube who are talking about it, including Seth Rogen. But publicly, they still maintain it was a cyber attack by North Korea. So you can't take that as proof. You can take it in as a data point. Again, you can remember that Sony claimed that a movie was taken out of the theaters due to a cyber attack by North Korea. You can make a data point that a plant had to shut down because Chinese hackers stole trade secrets that somehow impacted their market in Wisconsin. You can use that as a data point, but you can't claim it to be 100% true. It adds to the bullshit hype factor. When that flashlight happens, people lose their jobs. You're looking at real-time cyber attacks happening every second. Those little virtual nuclear explosions are hitting Milwaukee, they're hitting Sheboygan, they're hitting Green Bay. See, when you take this hyperbole and you combine it with the blatant smearing of facts, what you end up with is essentially propaganda. He shut down its Middleton plant after a Chinese company stole software. More than 700 people lost their jobs. One of the FBI's top priorities is keeping our Fortune 500 companies like Northwestern Mutual, Harley-Davidson, Oshkosh, and Kohl's secure. <laughs> There's your big industries. And so the FBI is going to protect uh, Harley-Davidson there from uh, phishing emails because that's what got John Podesta, right? And that's in front of violent street gangs, fraud, and all this other stuff we do. The FBI building in St. Francis money, money. has a dedicated cyber squad. The room is so classified, they wouldn't let us anywhere near it. Franz says the simplest way to protect your job is to take annual security training sessions seriously. You can't rely on some woman in IT or a guy guarding the door to be protecting your job. In his attempt to be non-sexist, he actually sounds more sexist right there. Some woman, you can't... Or a guy guarding the door to be protecting your job. Wisconsin companies losing productivity, losing their competitiveness uh -oh. on the world stage because somebody clicked on an email or an attachment or visited an infected website. A risk not worth taking. In St. Francis, I'm Adrian Pedersen, WISN 12 News. Why isn't the FBI working with these corporations to implement best practices? Because simple network best practices would prevent all of this. 
obviously at the email level, at the server level, before it even gets into the user's inbox, you have it scanned and you have it analyzed. There's lots of solutions, tons of commercial and tons of free ones, some that are really good and some that suck, where you could take care of a lot of that stuff at the edge. But once you get into the LAN, these things should be segmented. Proper file permissions and proper use of user accounts is all it takes to prevent a massive phishing exploit that runs over your network. Think about it for a second. If you double-click an attachment, that attachment only has the permissions that the user account that is executing the attachment has. It can only do what the user executing the attachment can do. Simple. Because it's running within the context of that user account. So if you have proper network file permissions on your file servers, if you isolate data out correctly, if you don't allow your end users to run as administrator, if you have certain aspects of your firewall, or you have certain aspects of your, uh, your, like your web server and your database servers on different f- networks, maybe behind a firewall or be, you know, on at least a different VLAN, network segmentation can help a lot. Proper authentication, proper user account management, and proper file permissions. That's the only thing required to properly secure your network from one of these supposed phishing attacks that now requires a dedicated FBI division to monitor in Wisconsin. And you know that's everywhere. You know that's everywhere. Simple, basic bitch procedures that have been implemented since networks were invented. Well, that's not true. But for a long time now, since I've been in high school, which is unfortunately becoming a longer and longer time. This is not new information. I've designed my own network that way. That's all it takes. It doesn't, it doesn't take all this hype. It just takes clear, easy-to-understand instructions that could be easily audited. That could be something the FBI could offer. They could offer, just like the DHS offers to audit the election systems of states. The FBI could offer to audit the computer systems of certain companies that request it, maybe even get a little money out of it. Maybe they could stop taking so much damn dollars, so many damn tax dollars, and they could do that. And it would actually accomplish something. But instead we get this fear-mongering with the stupid with the uh, Hunt for Red October sound effects. I love it. All right. Well, have you noticed that we haven't heard from Julian Assange much recently? What do you suppose that's about? Julian Assange is reportedly facing new limitations that include bans on phone calls and even visitors. According to WikiLeaks, the whistleblowing group he co-founded, the restrictions come as his fate is being negotiated by UK and Ecuadorian authorities. His internet access is still blocked. We have had talks. We're interested in solving this issue. (laughs) Assange is aware that Ecuador is exhausting all efforts by diplomatic means. That sounds bad. So the U.S. is pressuring, his internet's been cut off, and Ecuador is exhausting all diplomatic means. Those are not good things. So I wonder where that's going to develop. It seems like a pressure campaign is building. And there is another kind of pressure campaign building, one against the White House for comments that were made about John McCain behind the scenes. And ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to the number one story that pissed me off this week. Well, first of all, the president just rolled out what he calls his blueprint to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. Now, let's stop here. I think part of this McCain controversy has simply been to distract from something positive about Donald Trump. By focusing on John McCain, they don't have to talk about the prescription drug pricing plan that Donald Trump has, his prescription for America. So this, and so these segments that the, that the news companies had gotten ready were, were, were originally going to be to discuss the new prescription plan. But once a new breaking story happens, they can jump onto that. So she was initially queued up to talk about the prescription drug plan that Trump announced, 
but instead is now able to pivot to the new controversy because, well, a new shiny. president just rolled out what he calls his blueprint to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. An issue on the minds of many midterm voters included in that is a plan to speed up the approval of cheaper generic drugs. But the White House has its own bitter pill to swallow. I do appreciate the fact that they are mowing the lawn while the Today Show is attempting to do an on-location spot. Because if anybody's listened to JB shows for a long time and ever tuned in live, you know in the summer times I constantly get trolled because there's two different contractors who um, the housing community here has hired out to manage the, the yard. And so one day one of them shows up and he mows his part of the lawn. And then the next day the other one shows up and he mows his part. And so it's like back-to-back mowing sometimes. And I love that I'm like, you know, of course, I'm, 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 I'm some Arlington podcaster. Of course I'm going to have these kinds of problems. I, don't have throw, I can't throw any weight around. Nobody cares about me. But this is NBC. And this is the Today Show. And it still happens to them. <laughs> For generic drugs. But the White House has its own bitter pill to swallow over the harsh controversy about what a staffer said about John McCain. Oh, the harsh controversy. Oh, what could it be? Oh. Fallout over an insult. I'm not going to validate a leak out of an internal staff meeting one way or the other. The White House refused to attempt damage control after staffer Kelly Sadler's derisive comment in a meeting that ailing John McCain's opposition to CIA director nominee Gina Haspel did not matter. You imagine how this goes down, right? They're all in a meeting, sitting around, and like, yeah, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to talk about this? John McCain's going to push back against her. What are we going to do about that? And somebody goes, ugh, McCain again. You mean Mr. Dossier Delivery Boy? God, is, he's, who cares? He's going to die soon. Because the man's got brain cancer. Opposition to CIA director nominee Gina Haspel did not matter because he's dying anyway. McCain's daughter Megan reacted Friday. Megan, who sits in the what is called the definition of the white privilege chair. I mean, this woman has nothing to offer other than the legacy of her father, who she says will be remembered for hundreds of years. What exactly would that legacy be for John McCain? Because I could tell you what we've covered in the show, and it's war, 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 war. So what is this great legacy? I don't understand what kind of environment you're working in when that would be acceptable, and then you can come to work the next day and still have a job. Oh, I do. It's called The View, because you guys do that kind of shit all the time on The View. What kind of environment you're working in when that would be acceptable, and then you can come to work the next day and still have a job. Sanders did confirm Sadler still works in the Trump White House. Yes, she does. The backup for McCain, who is battling brain cancer, was swift and bipartisan. Joe Biden said in a statement, as he fights for his life, he deserves better. This really shows you that we have one party. We have the corporatists. We have the big interest party. And, and then we have everybody else. Because this, the, the, the love for McCain is gross. He's an awful person. He's a bad person. What is John? Somebody, somebody tell me what, somebody in the IRC room right now, tell me what John McCain is so great for. I mean, I'm not talking about speaking ill of people who are dying. I would avoid that whenever possible. But let's stop pretending like he's some sort of great hero. He got captured. He spilled the beans completely. He eventually got released. He failed to ever uh, actually win the presidency, despite his pathetic attempts. And he seems to have been a big special interest for the military in Israel his entire time he was in office. So I, I'm, 
the one thing that he promised for the people was a la carte cable. That was John McCain's big thing for the little people, and he never even got that done. O'Biden said in a statement, as he fights for his life, he deserves better. Ohio Governor John Kasich made a video. The comments by a White House staffer in regard to John McCain were just outrageous. Yeah, you know, it's really a shame because you'd, you'd, you'd hope for more from Kasich, right? Like, shut up and get your work done. Really? How is this helping America? How does this improve the country by, by piling on like this? Totally out of line. Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. Something that is this bad, uh, you, you ought to just apologize and get past it. Every one of these monsters knows that this was an intentional leak out of that White House designed to attack this person. Everybody knows that. Every one of these people is politically savvy enough to realize that, and they're still exploiting the situation. And they know it could have been them, because it's the game of politics. So I don't think that it was handled well. Turning to the Michael Cohen investigation, where regrets flowed from AT&T's top executive after the company paid Trump's personal lawyer $600,000. There is no other way to say it. AT&T hiring Michael Cohen as a political consultant was a big mistake. Fuck the, EU. the White House did respond to questions about Cohen receiving payments from corporations like AT&T. Sarah Sanders claimed that shows that the president cannot be influenced by special interests because his administration opposed the merger of AT&T and Time Warner while his personal lawyer Cohen was being paid by AT&T. Wow, I think it just shows they didn't pay enough, but what do I know? Uh, moving on, because, uh, yeah, let's talk about special interest and that White House. Let's talk about Bolton. So John Bolton has been stepping in it recently. That's why North Korea is so upset. And it was all actually in this interview I'm about to play for you. Now, the thing is, is I don't want to play the whole thing. I would lose my mind. But I do want to play the first bit about the Iran sanctions questions that uh, Tapper asked Bolton, because this was my point last week. We have spent... 12 to 15 years applying international sanctions between our European partners, China, and the rest of the world, really leveraging all of our economic sanctions together to apply radical pressure to Iran to get them into this deal that Kerry and Obama and everybody finally got through. Now that the U.S. has pulled out of the Iran deal and is going to reapply sanctions, we're going at it alone. We don't have that massive world lever anymore. It's just us. Now, that's still a pretty big lever because we have, A, a huge economy. B, we have a ton of patents and other ways that we can go after companies that are using our technology and still selling to Iran. So that's a very big lever. And we have the good old U.S. greenback. So you can kind of see maybe there's a strategy that the White House is working. But even all of that said, it seems like a huge long shot because it obviously took all of those other countries getting in on the sanctions pile for it to actually work because that lever that we've had has only gotten weaker. So I, I, it still seems like a crapshoot at best a gamble, more like a long play for war. And the possibility of sanctions working is just a smokescreen of an attempt to bring them back to the table when the reality is it's an aggressive act of war. But here is John Bolton attempting to explain how it's going to work. I want to start with the Iran deal. Um, it took a decade uh, of worldwide sanctions against Iran um, to get Iran to come to the table to make this deal, which I know you and the president feel is inadequate. Can you explain to me how you're going to be able to get Iran to agree to a new tougher deal without 
the participation in sanctions of China and Russia and Europe? Well, I think you have to start first with the fundamental deficiencies of the deal itself. Uh, it would not stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. Quite the contrary, it provided cover for Iran to continue its efforts. Uh, and if it had continued, it would have given Iran extraordinary economic benefits uh, without any guarantees of Iranian performance. So the rationale for getting out of the deal is that it was contrary to American national security interest when we entered into it, and it hadn't gotten any better with age. Can I just, can I just propose for one second? When you say it provided cover for them, to create a, a, a nuclear program. You're talking about the sunset provisions that allow Iran, I'm, I'm just seeking clarity here, that, uh, that allow Iran in seven or eight years to commence again a nuclear energy program? Well, I think the sunset provisions were clearly a mistake, but I think uh, Iran had never made a strategic decision to give up nuclear weapons. I think it was testing the limits uh, of the deal's provisions, exceeding them in some cases. Uh, its ballistic missile program, which continued essentially unchecked, uh, was proof that what they were seeking was delivery systems for the nuclear weapons. So the president has to make a decision uh, where America's national interests lie, and it did not lie in continuing this deal. Now, the consequence of the United States getting out of it uh, is to reimpose all American sanctions as they were before the deal came into effect. And I think what we've seen is that uh, Iran's economic condition is really uh, quite shaky, so that the effect here could be dramatic. And I think there's another important point here that the president has made. Uh, because of the deal, Iran was able to take advantage of turmoil in the region to advance its interest all across the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, uh, in Yemen, so that the consequences of being able to sell Iranian oil without restriction mm -hmm. on the international market were providing them resources not just uh, for their nuclear program, not just as the world's central banker of international terrorism, but <laughs> conventional hostilities across the region as okay, well. Okay. That's a good line right there. The, the international banker of terrorism, which is really us. Come on. Uh, let's talk about money for a moment and terrorism. So I just briefly mentioned it recently that the U.S. was pulling out funding for the White Helmets. Well, there is a congressman who is asking to resume funding of these controversial white helmets. White helmets, I don't think, would even try to claim that they're impartial. Um, but uh, And actually, I think defunding them was one of the better moves Trump has made recently when it comes to the Middle East. Uh, one in a, in a series of others that I don't agree with. But, but the issue is up for debate. A congressman has asked the Trump administration to resume its funding of the controversial Syrian activist group, the White Helmets. Reports of Washington cutting money to the group emerged a week ago through, though no confirmation has been issued so far. RTSK Maupin dug deeper into the story for us. Well, Ed Royce from the Foreign Affairs Committee of the U.S. Congress, he's met with the White Helmets on many occasions with other politicians. He's been photographed with them. He's a big supporter of the White Helmets. And now he's calling for their funding to be immediately restored. We cannot abandon the region. We must work with our partners and use all the tools of diplomacy, including financial pressure and U.S. assistance, to help change conditions on the ground. The administration should start by immediately resuming stabilization funding, including oh. to the White Helmets. Stabil stabilization funding of their attempt to overthrow Assad. They make it sound like it's to stabilize the country. But to stabilize the country, that would require pulling out the psychopaths that we're financing and arming us and our allies. That would require Assad having governance over his own country to actually introduce stability. If you topple Assad 
and you let the terrorists that were financing run free, that would create an intense amount of instability. But yet they they promote themselves as a force of good that is there to in, in, help stability. And uh, everyone's all in except for the U.S. Everyone's all in. It's Last all week, in. the Trump administration froze their U.S. funding with thousands of civilian lives at risk. Will the prime minister step up pledge the government to plug the funding shortfall that now exists and ensure these heroic rescue workers can continue their work. Now, what's remarkable uh, about this is this is Matthew Pennycock. Oh, I'm sorry, Cook. <clears throat> sorry, my bad. Uh, and he is uh, of the British Labour Party, the MP of the British Labour Party. And he's the one saying, war, 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 war. We need to fund more war. Please step up and tell us you'll fund more war. Shortfall that now exists and ensure these heroic rescue workers can continue their work. Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman, we recognise the very important and valuable work that the White Helmets are doing. They are, as he says, doing this in horrendously difficult conditions. They are incredibly brave to be continuing that work. We do support them. We will continue to support them. And my right honourable friend, the International Development Secretary, will be looking at the level of that support in the future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they're all in. The British are all in. They're all in. We've got to keep it going. Keep it going. Keep showing them that money. Money, money, money. Got to keep the white helmets going because they're doing the good work. Now, there was also the big release of the Russian Facebook ads. I bet you guys got to look at some of those. I started downloading the whole shebang. They're huge. It's gigs and gigs. One thing that jumped out at me is the decline as the election approached of how many ads were bought. That's not something the media is really talking about very much. But it started heavy um, about uh, midway in like the whole span of data that we have, like there was a, you could tell they were uh, testing early on, and then they went all crazy, and as the election approached, they actually scaled back their ad purchases. Trump and Bernie Sanders, not nearly as many ads supporting Hillary Clinton, but if you look at the Russians' big picture scenario, it appears the goal was to really stir up racial and political divisions because most of the ads were issue-based like immigration and gun control. And thanks to Facebook's targeting tools, the Russians were able to deliver phony information to specific groups, white, black, Hispanic, LGBTQ, even viewers who watch Fox News or MSNBC. The next goal was to entice American voters into liking or following Russian Facebook pages and ads, and they were almost getting real-time feedback. For example, there was a born liberal ad that got 50,000 views and was then shared, and this make-believe ad for a made-up black activist group got 10,000 hits. Other ads only got a few clicks, likes, or views. And the bottom line is the popular ads often made their way into Facebook news feeds and got a whole lot more exposure. The unsuccessful ads were quickly taken down. Shocker. As long as they have the targeting tools, how can you stop this? It's going to be tough, right? I mean, some of the ads were bought well after the election, in fact, well into 2017, causing some lawmakers to believe the Russians might still be at it. And today, Facebook released a statement reading, quote, this will never be a solved problem because we're up against determined, creative and well-funded adversaries, but we're making steady progress. And on that note, we should note Facebook has implemented a number of oversight measures. But in hindsight, you know, some of the ads were dead giveaways. They were 
were bought with rubles and the language <laughs> was poor. For example, one anti-immigration ad read that immigrants, quote, should prove that they are deserved to stay in the U.S. and a pro-Black Lives Matter Ooh. ad read, quote, your life matter, yeah. my life matter, black matters. Not exactly the best context. Lawmakers put all this information out there so that we can see it and then hopefully do a much better job of guarding ourselves the next time around if there is a next time around. Go ahead. Thank you, Trace. Trace Gallagher in L.A. If, if we need to guard ourselves against that, we are the stupidest nation on the planet. If we can't guard ourselves against that, we are so stupid. That is frustrating. It's really frustrating to think that people could be fooled by any of that. I just don't buy it. I, you know, I wonder when Google's turn in the barrel is because Google AdWords is this functionality for the entire Internet. Now, Facebook does let you get a little more specific in a few ways because of the information that Facebook has about you. But if if you've never bought a Google ad before, uh, you might not know that it's it's kind of the same thing. But for every site on the Internet that uses AdWords. So when is Google's time? Because this is a bigger problem than Facebook. A lot of you probably saw the story this week about the company that's tracking your cell phone and selling the location information. And you could even go sign up and try it out for free. That kind of stuff happens all the time. MoviePass, the movie subscription service, is all about your data. The app that you use on your phone to use the service tracks your location so they can sell to advertisers your night out at the movies. I know this. Because the guy that runs the company was bragging about it in a financial call, and I covered it on Tech Talk today. Movie Pass is about $10 a month, and you can go see about a movie a day. So it's a pretty good deal if you like going to see the movies. But it requires the use of an app. And that app is a data collection whore. And they want to build an entire night out. So they want to know where you went to eat. They want to know where your girlfriend's house was at or boyfriend's house was at. They want to know what theater you went to, what movie you saw, how long you stayed at the theater, if you went out later, maybe if you went back to her or his house. They want to know all of that, and they're going to sell that as a package to the advertisers. It's all out there. They're, they're, they're not even trying to hide it. So why is it just Facebook? Is it about the ads? Is this step one? If they go after Google, then we know it's really about the privacy and the ads. If they stay after Facebook, then it's probably about something else. Now, Google has a huge, huge lobbying effort in D.C. Maybe it's about that. Maybe this is a message to Facebook to start paying more lobbyists. Although I think they already do that. Not quite sure. I, I'm no fan of Facebook. Don't get me the wrong way. I, I don't use it. I have an account there, but I don't use it. I'm not logged in. <clears throat> I'm no fan of Facebook, but this seems like we're now on about, what, two months of Facebook being in the barrel? Uh, that pink-haired kid was uh, just testifying before a Senate panel today. Every single day, I see stories about Facebook. So, so something's going on specifically with Facebook. If it doesn't move on, if it doesn't move on from Facebook, then I think we'll have a, at least partial a partial answer. Let's talk about this beautiful moment, though, in State Department uh, briefings. You know, they do these; they have these nearly daily briefings. And the old Fox News reporter is now a State Department spokesperson, 
and uh, she gets off. She gets asked an awkward question about Israel, and she's not having it. And we and we're gonna have to wrap. Or Israel killing when you say Israel has okay. a right to defend we're, itself. We're, we're done with Israel this. Israel has a right we, to defend we've itself. Already, we've already been and there. And there are no Israeli casualties. Okay. And there are literally tens okay. of thousands. I think, I think we've covered 10, this extensively already. Palestinian okay. casualties in the past. Go on. One last yeah. question. Yeah. Do you have something else? Yeah. On the Lebanese? I mean, the U.S. isn't, you know, mowing down people along the U.S.-Mexican border. We, Isn't that We are done with this issue. We've covered extensively already. I've taken many questions on so this. So Israel's off the hook again. Sir, thank you, for, thank you for your again. question. I think we've covered this already, okay? I'm sorry, I'll get back to you another time, okay? It's, thank you. i got to get out of here, she says. And everybody bails. <laughs> Awkward. All right, now, I'm not saying that uh, Oprah smokes pot. But I think Gail is saying that Oprah smokes pot because if you listen to this clip, Gail implies, oh, oh, I think maybe Oprah smoked once or twice before. But then she then she tells another story that involves another actress. And that actress seems to clearly know that Oprah likes to smoke. I don't know what to make of this clip. I I didn't throw it in the high note because it doesn't really matter. But if we're going to wrap up the overtime, I'm going to I'm going to play this and I'll let you decide. But I'm thinking Oprah Oprah smokes. Don't you think if you are going to smoke marijuana, wouldn't Amy be a good girl to smoke the it with? Yeah. Wouldn't she be a good girl to smoke it with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there's a reason why she's just randomly throwing that out there. At first, you're like, that seems totally rando. No, stick with it. There's, this is actually something she's going to do. But, like, if you're best friends with Oprah, I mean... You know, well, you got to invite her, too. Well, I'm not, tell- I'm, I'm not saying anything, but I think she has smoke marijuana. <laughs> Mommy needs a joint. I, I think she has. But this is funny. Oprah just recently did an interview with Amy, and when it was over, she said, um, Amy said, Oprah, I need to talk to you about something. And Oprah thought it was going to be something really important. And she said, we've got to get Gail to smoke marijuana. No. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? But, you know, I, I, I intend to do it one of these days. It will not be a public event. I'm just curious. I'm just curious. Well, you know, I'm just curious. I'm just, she smokes all the time. Oprah and Gail be smoking out with Amy Schumer. You know it. I just covered it right here. The news has been broken. Your life has been changed. But I leave it up to you. Do you make your decisions? But I'm thinking Oprah's a pothead. Amy Schumer's a pothead. And Gail's about to become a pothead. And none of that matters. See you next week.